Romans 3, as we have just read, is a, a difficult passage, one that uh, sounds like we're in a dark corner, needing some encouragement, and I hope Sunday School has been uh, the encouragement to see in uh, where we're going in Romans. I mean, we're not going as quick as Sunday School is, so Sunday School is already up to Romans 12, and we're I feel like we're moving real slow through Romans 3, Uh, but it's going to be helpful for us over the next probably two years to go slowly through this book because it's going to be a logical uh, friend uh, that's going to help you uh, to know good truth, good theology, we call it, and know how to know what to believe, know how to talk to those around you as they are uh, confused and trying to live life without God, how to bring God to the, a world that desperately needs him, Romans is going to be one of your best friends, all right? So if you can get to know this friend really well, this friend will help inform you and uh, in how to uh, reach out to those around you and how to comfort yourself whenever you're feeling, uh, whenever you're feeling alone or you need, uh, you need a close friend. Well, if you look at Romans 3, verse 9, we see a phrase at the end of verse 9 that it says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are under sin. What does this mean? Well, I chose a word that we all probably know, the word dominates. What is dominating your life? Romans 6 is going to tell us what should dominate the life of a Christian. But all people under sin means all people are dominated by sin. They are controlled by it. They are slaves to it. They have to obey it. And if you can imagine the worst of slavery in human history where a taskmaster, like you think of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, and the taskmaster with a whip is telling people to make bricks and is beating them when they don't make enough bricks. And they say, I, don't, I can't make any more bricks than you're asking me to do. And they say, you have to make more. And they say, I can't. And so they just get beaten. That's what a life looks like that is dominated by sin. Sin is holding a whip, and there are all kinds of sin. We have seen all categories of sin from Romans 1 to Romans 2, and now Romans 3. And we we wrap up today with how does sin dominate a life? We have seen in previous messages that all of us, dominated by sin, have painted ourselves in a corner, and there's no escape. While we're in the corner, we're awaiting trial like we are all wearing orange jumpsuits that we talked about last week. And now as we're in the corner, awaiting trial, all wearing orange jumpsuits, and there's no escape, we start talking and listening to each other, and this is what we're going to see, and this is what we're going to hear. And we're going to see the effects of a sin-dominated life. It's not a pleasant picture, which we're not expecting it to be, but it's a necessary picture. If people don't realize they're dominated by sin and there is freedom, why would they want Christ? But if they 
realize they're dominated by sin. And there's one Savior that can, has conquered sin and will set them free forevermore. That's a Savior that they need. So sin dominates all people before Christ. There's an effort now to change what BC means in our dating method. This is 2023. But the earth didn't begin. Creation didn't happen 2,023 years ago. What happened 2,023 years ago? Christ came. The calendar changed. And there is an attempt in a secular world to, instead of calling it B.C. and A.D., or A.D. means year of our Lord, to change it to common era, which is now, and before common era. B.C.E. and C.E. As much as the world wants to get rid of Jesus, they're still going to recognize this is year 2023. And we say, it's the year of our Lord. And everything that happened before Christ comes is always going to be B.C. to us. You can change the name, but you can't change the reality. Christ came. Calendar changes. Something drastic happened. And before Christ, we look at Romans 1 and 2 and 3, and this was us. Whether we were immoral or moral or religious, all of us before Christ were dominated by sin. All are under sin's control. We sin by choice. We sin because we have to. We love to. There's no other option other than living a life of sin before Christ. And there's no freedom outside of him. So, domination of sin. I looked out of my window a week and a half ago, maybe, and saw on my neighbor's front lawn across the busy road that I live on this picture. This isn't my picture, but anytime you see this character dead on the road, what do you expect? Smell. And if this character is hit on your road right in front of your house, guess what your house inside is going to smell like eventually? Yeah, and you don't want this kind of perfume inside of your house. My neighbor is in her late 70s, and I asked her, hey, what are you going to do with that? It was in her yard, just on the side of the road. In her yard, she's like, well, I was going to put it in a bag and put it in my car and take it to the dump. I said, do not put that in your car. This was not a truck. This was a car. Don't, don't put that in your car. Do you want me to bury it for you? She's like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> so I get a shovel, I dig a hole, and I carry it across the road. People probably thought I was crazy. And I put it in the ground. And thankfully, it actually didn't smell. I don't know. It must have died without uh, releasing its perfume. So we don't have what this verse, Romans 3.13. So we're going to look at 13 to 18 today. But whenever you and I think of an open grave, we don't think of, oh, a tomb is open and the smell of death is coming out. You remember when Lazarus, when Jesus told them to roll away the stone from Lazarus's tomb, they said, don't do it, he stinks. And that was just four days. Okay, so to have a grave that was open that would let the smell of death out, you wouldn't 
a reason you would seal a grave is to keep the smell of death in there. And so uh, we don't have open graves like that. So the best I could come up with was roadkill. Okay, roadkill smells like death. And let's see how sin dominates a life. We have in verses 13 and 14, four mentions of synonyms that refer to the same thing. And I have it up here, sin dominates the speech or the mouth of the guilty. So while we are wearing our orange jumpsuits, painted in a corner, awaiting trial, knowing that we're guilty, we're talking to each other, and this is what our speech sounds like. Verse 3, their throat is an open grave. When someone who is dominated by sin opens their mouth, you know what comes out? The smell of death. You're like, ugh. We call it trash mouth, potty mouth, all kinds of, like when someone who is dominated by sin, when they talk, it's like raw sewage is coming out. Smell of roadkill. You're like, ugh, I don't want to be around that. But if you get used to the smell of death coming out of your mouth, you're like, this is how everybody talks. No, this isn't how everybody talks. But a life dominated by sin, this is what we can expect, the speech of the guilty. Their speech, their throat is an open grave. I have up here on the screen the cross-reference, Psalm 5.9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. That is not quoted in Romans 3, but here is the part that is. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Deceit and flattery comes up again. But for the quote from Psalm 5.9, their throat is an open grave. It is no wonder that those who are dead in trespasses and sins... Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They are dead to God, living under the domination of sin. And the fruit of their throat, when they open their mouth, it's obvious that sin is dominating that life. There's another phrase in verse 13 of Romans 3. They use their tongues to deceive. The poison or the venom of asps is under their lips. The next picture we all do not want to see, a venomous snake. We don't have a lot of venomous snakes around here from what I hear. Uh, They're very, very limited. I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania. I probably saw a venomous snake one time, and we ran it over with our car as far as we could tell. Um, But in the south, southwest, many parts of the world where it's a warmer climate, venomous snakes are a reality. And if you come across this type of, uh, I think it's a rattlesnake here, we avoid it. Anyone in their right mind would not go to the pet store and say, hey, do you have any rattlesnakes? Because I want a pet for my my child, and like, yeah, we have rattlesnakes. Come on over here. We got co- copperheads, and like, you're out of your mind to have a snake that can 
or a pet that can bite you and kill you. But this is the speech of the guilty, the life that is dominated by sin. Psalm 140 verse 3 is on our screen here. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. When people that are dominated by sin in the guilty corner wearing the orange jumpsuit, whenever they talk, their speech is deadly. It doesn't just smell like death. It's actually deadly. It's destructive. And here's the picture. The venom of asps is under their lips. So we have seen throat. We missed uh, tongues, but I believe that is uh, also Psalm 5.9. And then here is under their lips. So we've seen throat, tongues, lips, all this is speech. And the death, the deceit, and now the, the destruction. Going back to the deceit of they use their tongues to deceive. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He didn't abide in the truth. When he speaks, he speaks of his own resources. There is no truth in his tongue. You are of your father the devil. The devil is a liar. And when we lie, we deceive. We are so much like Satan. And Jesus was trying to help the Pharisees who thought they were related to Abraham, which we heard in Sunday school from Romans um, 9 and 10 and 11. They thought they were related to Abraham. And, and Jesus says to them, you're of your father, the devil. Your speech betrays you. Your speech is deceitful. You've deceived yourself. You're deceiving others. And this is how we destroy relationships. We destroy marriages. We destroy uh, people in our church. We destroy our workplace whenever we lie. The domination of sin. Here is a picture, and we all know, trying to find a picture of a liar, it's easy to find a picture of Pinocchio. Here is a man on the left who thinks he is right, he's religious, he's good. Everyone tells him he's good. He looks in the mirror of God's word and he sees the shadow. And the shadow's a long nose. He's not good. This is how God sees us, all with long noses. We're all deceivers. Jesus, what, stood, what made Jesus stand out from the rest of the 8 billion people that are alive today, he never lied. There was never deceit in his mouth. And whenever you and I witness to people, ask people, and often wit, people who witness a lot, they start with this. How many lives have you told? And instantly someone says, well, I, I don't even know. Well, they're just white lies, just little lies. Are they lies? If they're lies, you're guilty before God. But in this painted corner where everybody lies, you don't feel that bad because everybody has the long nose. It doesn't make you look less foolish. But it, you can't trust anybody today 
This is why insurance companies charge us a lot more. This is why in the toy aisle, everything is wrapped and, and put in a like almost adult proof to try to get toys apart, to get all the little pieces. You know why that happens? <laughs> because people lie and steal. And now we pay more money for toys and other things because no one tells the truth. Fraud is huge. Every, everybody lies. And sin dominates the speech of the guilty. Psalm 10 verse 7 here is quoted. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And how does Paul quote here in verse 14? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Going back to the Old Testament to get a picture of this, every time the Israelites, in, the, in wondering after they have been rescued, every time they had an issue, whether it was lack of water, lack of food, lack of meat, no matter what it was, God judging them with the serpents or uh, opening the earth and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are, are swallowed up. Their response to that trials and God's punishment was their mouths were full of curses and bitterness. If people were to listen to you speak, would they, would they say, here is a complaining person? You know, we had too much rain this spring. You know, this past week was too hot. You know, today is too cloudy. You know, your car is too small or too slow or it gets too little gas mileage or it gets too great a gas mileage or you can't find or lunch today is going to be too heavy, too light, too little, too much. Our mouth shows that we are not a grateful people. And when you're around someone whose mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression and mischief and iniquity, it wears on you until you realize you speak the same way. I speak the same way. This is why I'm guilty before God. This is why I need a Savior to rescue me from my mouth. Jesus and John the Baptist and Stephen in particular, these three, when they spoke to the religious people of their day, as you read through the Old Testament and you read through Psalm 36 that we'll see at the end, you'll see Psalm 140 and and Psalm 10 and Psalm 5, and there are many other Psalms that talk about the wicked and the righteous. When religious people read the Psalms, they think, do they, do they think they're the wicked or the righteous? They think incorrectly that they are the, the righteous. Why are these bad things happening to me? They complain against God. And they're complaining against God. And in complaining against God, they're proving that they're not the righteous. They're the wicked. As Stephen in Acts 7 gets to preach and tells an overview of the Old Testament and says, you guys think that you are the righteous, but actually you're the wicked. You're the wicked people that would have bowed the knee to Baal, that would have killed the prophets, 
that would have put Joseph in slavery, that would have complained in the wilderness, and on and on the list went, and they cut him off and they killed him before he got to the end point was, and here is, you, you got Jesus here and you killed him. You are not the righteous. So he, how do we help people that are dominated by sin? If they will, by God's grace, read God's word with you. Read Romans 3, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Ask them, do you see yourself here? Because before Christ, all of us were here. We're all dominated by sin. Jews, Greeks, religious, secular, moral, immoral, we're all here. All of our speech sounds like this. We just prove. Psalm 10 matches Psalm 14 and 53 that we saw last week. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, the people do wickedness because they say there is no God. Psalm 10 also says, people that are wicked live wicked lives because they think there's no God. We'll see that again in Psalm 36 at the end. A life dominated by sin. We go from the speech to the path. What does a person's life look like? In this painted corner, orange jumpsuit, looking around, everybody's got long noses. Everybody complains. Everybody blasphemes God. Everybody blames God for their problems. No one tells the truth. If they do, it's just to get ahead. Their path, because of their speech, the path of the guilty, and I chose this picture because this path is not a path that anyone would want to be on. If you're on a road trip and your road looks like this, and you see fire at the end of the road, what do you do? Oh, kids, we're going to be there to grandma and grandpa's house. No, what do you do? It's going to take a little longer, but we're turning around. We're not going this way. But this is what Romans 3 is meant to narrow, to funnel everybody to realize this is where your life is headed. Your life is headed this way because you are dominated by sin. You are guilty before God. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how immoral you are. Your life is dominated by sin, and you can expect your life to get worse instead of better. The, the path of a life that is headed toward destruction, sin dominates this life. Proverbs 1.16, we're not going to look at, but Psalm uh, uh, 59 is up here, or Isaiah 59, I'm sorry. Proverbs 1.16 says, uh, the wisdom that you get from your parents is going to keep you from this group, the, the mob of people who are going to say, hey, come, let's go uh, beat people up and take their stuff. And quoting Psalm, or Proverbs 1.16, here is verse 15 of Romans 3. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
the mob, the immoral, and even sometimes the moral and the religious are quick to shed blood. Proverbs 1.16 said that because they don't have God's wisdom. Now let's look back at the life of John the Baptist, Jesus, and Stephen in particular. Where the religious people and the, the, those who were Jewish like Herod the king, were they quick to shed blood? They were. They killed John the Baptist. They killed Jesus. And they got the whole crowd to chant crucify him. Gave him a, not a fair trial because if they gave him a fair trial, they wouldn't have been crucified. And then Stephen, such a quick trial, mob rule, drug him out, took their coats off, hit him with stones until he was dead, swift to shed blood. Why were these people so quick to shed blood? Well, Romans 3 gives us the answer, because their life was dominated by sin. Simple, isn't it? A life that is dominated by sin is a life that will justify killing children in a mother's womb. The quick solution to immorality and children that we don't want is quick to let's just kill them. We're not far from the culture of the New Testament. A life dominated by sin will justify being quick to shed blood. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 starts with salvation that God wants to give, but the people have turned away from God. Their iniquities have separated between them and God, and God doesn't hear. And as God doesn't hear, and they have tried to get to know God, but he won't hear them because of their iniquity and because they have uh, chosen uh, a life of sin. They eventually end up seven verses into this uh, Isaiah 59. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. That's the grossness of sin. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. Now let's look at Isaiah, or, uh, Romans three fifteen to 17, and you'll see how this is from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. If we're on a road trip and we're traveling down a road that looks like this, is your path going to get easier or harder? It's going to get harder. And if you continue down this road that leads to destruction, it's starting to get hotter. There are no resources here. It's going to refresh your soul. It's going to get harder and harder. And look at the life of those who are dominated by sin and are rejecting God. Their life gets harder and harder and harder. God loves the world to warn the guilty sinner that the path they're on leads to ruin and misery and destruction. And on this path, there is no peace because you don't know the Prince of Peace. You don't know the God of Peace. You don't have grace and peace 
like Romans starts with, and many books of the New Testament start with. If you reject Jesus Christ, you're in a painted corner, no escape. You're awaiting trial, wearing an orange jumpsuit. People around you are all complaining, lying, deceiving. Every time they open their mouth, it smells like death. And they're going in circles almost, headed toward destruction. There is no peace. God is not going to allow people to reject him and reject his salvation and have a life of peace. Oh, there may be people that have, are billionaires that are on this path, but they will tell you their money is not bringing them peace. There will be people that have marriages that are intact and their children love them, and they'll say their relationships, humanly speaking, are not giving them the peace because they're rejecting God. They may be sitting in churches that aren't giving them the gospel and the truth, and they feel good about themselves as moral people, but they're still in a painted corner, wearing orange jumpsuit, and their life looks like this. How many people of the world are born on this path? And Romans 3 would say, all. All people are dominated by sin. We're all born this way. Now, we all don't have to stay this way. And I'll end with hope. But a life that is dominated by sin, the path is predictable. It always looks like verses 15, 16, and 17. There is no exception to this apart from Christ. Every single unsaved life looks like verses 15 to 17. It's sad, but it's true. And finally, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why are we dominated by sin? And let's look back and just summarize verses 10 through 17. Why are we turning aside? Why aren't we seeking God? Why are we talking this way? Why are we on this path that we think is okay we try to get rid of some stones maybe, and yet we're still headed for destruction. We have God's law that we know we are breaking. We're feeling guilty, and yet we don't think a U-turn is necessary. How do people stay on this path? How do people stay in a painted corner wearing an orange jumpsuit, surrounded by liars, deceivers, smelling of death, and thinking, oh, this is the best thing. This is awful. And when given the one solution, they say, no. Oh, that's good for you. No, that's good for everybody. That's just good for you. I'll find my own path. I'll make my own way. No, no, your your path is going to look like this. If it's not God's way. 
See, we can be surrounded and feeling guilty and know we're guilty, know we've broken God's law, know our lives and our speech betrays us and our path leads to destruction. And instead of looking up, we look within. If you go on, the small print underneath, don't look up, look within, is a, I think it's an album uh, called Fearless Soul. Obviously can't recommend it. I would actually strongly oppose it, which is why I put the red marks through it. (laughs) Don't look up, look within. I listened to the song on YouTube that has, I think, five million views last night, and I about threw up. It's garbage. If you young people are listening to this song, don't listen to it. It's garbage. Any time the world and Satan and your heart says, don't look up, look within, that's trash. Rubbish. It's destructive. Makes you feel good in your painted corner or in your orange jumpsuit and you don't need God. Anything that fools you into thinking you don't need God is trash. No matter how popular it is, no matter how great the song, the, the, the music is. And this song, songs, says, don't look up, look within. You have everything you need inside of you. That's the lyrics. Big letters on YouTube. Millions of views. It's trash. Why? Because it's telling you where to look to keep you on the wrong path. What does Scripture say? You need to fear God. What did we see yesterday at the funeral from Psalm 34? You need to fear God. There's no want for those who fear Him. In Psalm 36, we're going to... It's up here. Um, transgression speaks. And we. I told Pastor Ty if he uh, would... Uh, be so kind as to start the service of Psalm 36, and he did. You can look at all of Psalm 36 again. The first half of it is uh, is uh, grieving the wicked, but the end of the psalm is extremely encouraging. But to match where we're at here in, in Romans 3.18 says this, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And I put verse 2 up here. If you can't see it, you can, you're welcome to look up Psalm 36 in your Bibles. But verse 2 tells us why there's no fear of God before their eyes. So imagine here, the whole world in a painted corner, no escape, knowing they're guilty, wearing their orange jumpsuits, lying and complaining, and every time they speak, it's like death is just coming out of them. And their path, the, the way they're headed is toward destruction and misery and no peace is in their life. And the longer they stay there, the less peace is obvious. And why are they staying there? Because of where they're looking. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And we tell them, look up. And they say, no way am I looking up. He is the problem. That's what happens in Revelation when God starts pouring out his wrath on man. They start blaspheming the only one that can save them. 
and the thieves on the cross when Jesus dies. The only one that can save them, one realizes that the other keeps blaspheming him. Judas Iscariot, the only one who could save him from his awful crime of betraying Christ, he didn't go to him and ask for forgiveness. He tried to take matters into his own hands. He looked within. He realized he was guilty. He went to the wrong people, the temple where he got the money and says, I don't want this money. I said, that's that's not up to us. That's your problem. He should have went there to Jesus. Jesus was publicly crucified. He could have went to Jesus instead of going to the cliff and throwing himself off. God doesn't force people to his son. But his son is the only solution. And you will never come to Jesus unless you first fear God. You will never make one wise choice in your life unless you first fear God. You will never escape the painted corner, orange jumpsuit, gross things coming out of your mouth. Your path leads to destruction. You'll never escape that unless you first fear God. And I'm not sugarcoating fearing God. It means fearing God. You're afraid of God. Proverbs says it. Old Testament says it. The New Testament says we are to live in the fear of God. We do not live this life for ourselves. We live in the fear of God. For the Christian... We never outgrow the fear of God. But for the lost, guilty person in the corner, they will not fear God because they won't look at him. You cannot see what you will not look at. You cannot read the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. God destroys the earth in a flood and think, "Ah, I probably shouldn't fear that God. You can't read Revelation where God's going to pour out his wrath and billions of people are going to die in a few days and say, eh, I probably shouldn't fear that God. You can't read Revelation 20, where all the dead, small and great, stand before him and your name is not in the Lamb's book of life and think, I don't need to fear God. You're headed for the lake of fire forever. There's no hope. And you say, I don't need to fear God. Are you serious? But you cannot see what you will not look at. And there has to be the fear of God before their eyes. So what does Psalm 36 give us insight into? When the people in the corner, guilty, most of the world on this broad path that leads to destruction, what are they thinking about? What are they looking at? This is not new looking within to find answers. What does verse 2 of Psalm 36 say? If you can't see it up there, open your Bibles. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. You know the word flatter means? Smooth. Easy to swallow. The the seductress person, uh, lady in, in Proverbs 2, I believe, speaks with 
flattery or smooth words. Tells you what you want to hear. You know why people don't fear God? Because they tell themselves what they want to hear. Oh, man. That's the problem. And what's the problem with the end times? Second Timothy says, people are going to get teachers around them that tell them what they want to hear. Joel Osteen's just telling people what they want to hear. He's not giving people the truth. And many, many other false teachers are doing the same thing. They're flattering you. They're lying to you. They're giving you smooth, easy listening Christianity words. And it sounds good to your wicked flesh. It makes you feel like, yeah, I'm in this painted corner and I'm guilty and I'm going to face God on Judgment Day and uh, everybody around me is like me too. And yeah, I just need to think good about myself. I just need to get positive people around me. So you get the negative people out away from you and just get positive people around you and you're still in the painted corner. You're still guilty before God. Why? Because your sin is still attached to your soul. Why is your sin still attached to you? Because you are not fearing God. You're flattering yourself in your own eyes. And the second part of verse 2 says that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. His iniquity can't be found out? What do people lie to themselves about? My sin is no big deal. That's what people say to themselves in the painted corner, guilty before God. That's what Psalm 36 warns us about. Thousands of years before any trashy songs are telling us to look within. God's truth is timeless. God knows the problem of man without him is going to flatter himself in his own eyes and tell himself lies that, hey, you know what? Your sin can't be found out. And if you could find it out, it's not that big a deal. It's not something to be hated. I don't know how you read Romans 1, 2, and 3 and think, sin's no big deal. What? Are you serious? Sin is awful. Where does sin lead? It's a huge deal. And any church that does not preach sin is not preaching the gospel. We're not sugarcoating God's word here. If you're watching or you're here and you want to feel good about yourself and your sin, this is not the church for you. But sin dominates the speech, sin dominates the path, and sin dominates the eyes. It does not want you to look at God and fear him because then you're going to turn away from evil. Proverbs 8, 13 says that. Where we fear God, we turn away from evil. Where people don't fear God, they start flattering themselves in their own eyes and thinking, my sin either won't be found out or, and I, I'm not going to hate it. Don't lie to people and say, your sin's no big deal. Your sin is awful. Self-righteousness, awful. Lying, awful. Committing adultery, 
awful. Lusting, awful. Pride, awful. Anger, selfish anger is awful. Being unkind, being bitter, awful. The domination of sin. I'm going to go opposite of what it says on the top here with Corey Tinboom. She lived a hard life in a concentration camp because she tried to rescue Jewish people during the Holocaust in Poland, I believe. And she says this If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. What? Go back. Don't look up, look within. This is what most, most people are saying today. Celebrities, I mean, everybody is saying this. Look within, you have everything good inside of you. <laughs> and she says, probably, probably a half century ago, if you look within, you will be depressed. You can expect it. People that are looking inside themselves, they're going to be depressed. I don't think they've got to take medication or something else. Don't look within. That's the real problem. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are meant to funnel all of sinful humanity toward looking to God. If we can use Scripture as God wants us to be trained by it, we will help, we'll thank God that we are not dominated by sin anymore, but we will not judge those because we were once dominated by sin. We will reach out to them and tell them, do not look within. You will not find answers. You'll find confusion and corruption. You'll find deceit inside of your heart. Don't look within. There is another place to look there where you will not find deceit and destruction and misery. You'll find peace. And that is look to God and look to him alone. So how do we talk with the guilty? And we're done. We give them truth. You say the world doesn't want truth. It doesn't matter what they want. We give our children truth. We give those around us truth. And so what can we learn from um, Romans 1 and 2? Creation and their conscience are pointing them to God's law. Anything that is against nature, creation says it's sinful. You're falling short of the glory of God. Anything against nature. Creation tells us that. Their conscience, Romans 2, is guilty. Why? Because God's law is on our hearts. We know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to lust. We know it's wrong to be angry selfishly. We know it's wrong to use our tongues to deceive. We know that. We have, got, we have a conscience. So creation and conscience are pointing people to God's law, and feeling guilty for sin is part of fearing God. Give people the truth. Also give the religious people, the moral people of Romans 2, there's only one way to be righteous, and it's not by trying harder or looking inside yourself. Verse 18 would tell us, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So if there is fearing God before someone's eyes. Hmm. Now there's hope. 
And let me leave you with verse 22 of Romans 3. It's on the screen here, but you can read uh, the rest of Romans 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. Where is righteousness found? It is not found within. We are not born righteous. We're born sinners. We do not choose righteously. We choose sin. We gather with other sinners in our painted corner in our orange jumpsuits, lying and, and complaining and blaspheming God and thinking it is okay if we live lives of ruin and misery as long as we're doing it together and no fearing God. Fearing God is antiquated. It's for our grandparents. No, it's timeless. The righteousness of God is available through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Trusting Christ to rescue you from you is what all of humanity needs. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the truth that you have shown us through Romans 1, 2, and 3. Thank you for showing us the connection with fearing God and wanting to see you in all of your holiness and righteousness and justice and helping us to fear you and turning away from evil and repenting of sin. I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to share the good news of the gospel after we share the bad news with our neighbors, our loved ones, friends who think they're okay. They're living lives like there's no God or they're not going to stand before God and they flatter themselves. I pray that today uh, we would be used of you. Give us opportunities. Give us a heart for the lost. Help uh, Romans to inform our heads and how to talk to how to reason with those who are still living under the domination of sin. Help our compassion for them to grow. That we would cry out to you for them and that you would draw many out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Help us as your children to walk and talk as children of light. Thank you for setting us free from this horrible master of sin. Help us to live for you because of our freedom in Jesus' name. Amen.